Welcome to the 33rd reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading in Book 3, Chapter 20, Section 9. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Section 9 In fine, supplication for pardon, with humble and ingenuous confession of guilt, forms both the preparation and commencement of right prayer. For the holiest of men cannot hope to obtain anything from God unless he has been freely reconciled to him. God cannot be propitious to any but those whom he pardons. Hence it is not strange that this is the key by which believers open the door of prayer, as we learn from several passages in the Psalms. David, when presenting a request on a different subject, says, quote, Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Unquote. Psalm 25, verse 7. Again, quote, Look upon my affliction and my pain, and forgive my sins. Unquote. Psalm 25, verse 18. Here also we see that it is not sufficient to call ourselves to account for the sins of each passing day. We must also call to mind those which might seem to have been long buried in oblivion. Or in another passage, the same prophet, confessing one grievous crime, takes occasion to go back to his very birth. Quote, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Unquote. Psalm 51, verse 5 not to extenuate the fault by the corruption of his nature, but, as it were, to accumulate the sins of his whole life, that the stricter he was in condemning himself, the more placable God might be. But although the saints do not always in express terms ask forgiveness of sins, yet if we carefully ponder those prayers as given in Scripture, the truth of what I say will readily appear, namely, that their courage to pray was derived solely from the mercy of God, and that they always began with appeasing him. For when a man interrogates his conscience, so far as he from presuming to lay his cares familiarly before God, that if he did not trust to mercy and pardon, he would tremble at the very thought of approaching him. There is indeed another special confession. When believers long for deliverance from punishment, they at the same time pray that their sins may be pardoned. For it were absurd to wish that the effect should be taken away while the cause remains. For we must beware of imitating foolish patients, who anxious only about curing accidental symptoms neglect the root of the disease. Nay, our endeavor must be to have God propitious even before he attests his favor by external signs, both because this is the order which he himself chooses, and it were of little avail to experience his kindness did not conscience feel that he is appeased, and thus enable us to regard him as altogether lovely. Of this we are even reminded by our Savior's reply, 
Having determined to cure the paralytic, he says, quote, Thy sins are forgiven thee, unquote. In other words, he raises our thoughts to the object which is especially to be desired, these admission into the favor of God, and then gives the fruit of reconciliation by bringing assistance to us. But besides that special confession of present guilt which believers employ in supplicating for pardon of every fault and punishment, that general introduction which procures favor for our prayers must never be omitted, because prayers will never reach God unless they are founded on free mercy. To this we may refer the words of John, quote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, unquote. 1 John 1, verse 9. Hence, under the law, it was necessary to consecrate prayers by the expiation of blood, both that they might be accepted, and that the people might be warned that they were unworthy of the high privilege until being purged from their defilements, they founded their confidence in prayer entirely on the mercy of God. Section 10. Sometimes, however, the saints, in supplicating God, seem to appeal to their own righteousness, as when David says, quote, Preserve my soul, for I am holy, unquote. Psalm 86, verse 2. Also, Hezekiah, quote, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight, unquote. Isaiah 38, verse 3. All they mean by such expressions is that regeneration declares them to be among the servants and the children to whom God engages that he will show favor. We have already seen how he declares by the psalmist that his eyes, quote, are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry, unquote. Psalm 34, verse 16. And again by the apostle, that, quote, whatsoever we ask of him we obtain, because we keep his commandments, unquote. John 3, verse 22. In these passages he does not fix a value on prayer as a meritorious work, but designs to establish the confidence of those who are conscious of an unfeigned integrity and innocence, such as all believers should possess. For the saying of the blind man who had received his sight is in perfect accordance with divine truth, quote, God heareth not sinners, unquote. John 9, verse 31, provided we take the term sinners in the sense commonly used by Scripture to mean those who, without any desire for righteousness, are sleeping secure in their sins, since no heart will ever rise to genuine prayer that does not at the same time long for holiness. Those supplications in which the saints allude to their purity and integrity correspond to such promises that they may thus have, in their own experience, a manifestation of that which all the servants of God are made to expect. Thus they almost always use this mode of prayer when before God they compare themselves with their enemies, from whose injustice they long to be delivered by his hand. When making such comparisons, there is no wonder that they bring forward their integrity and simplicity of heart, that thus by the justice of their cause the Lord may be the more disposed to give them succor. We rob not the pious breast of the privilege of enjoying a consciousness of purity before the Lord, and thus feeling assured of the promises with which he comforts and supports his true worshippers, but we would have them to lay aside all thought of their own merit, and found their confidence of success in prayer solely on the divine mercy. Section 11. The fourth rule of prayer is that notwithstanding of our being thus abased and truly humbled, we should be animated to pray with the sure hope of succeeding. There is indeed an appearance of contradiction between the two things, between a sense of the just vengeance of God and firm confidence in his favor, and yet they are perfectly accordant if it is the mere goodness of God that raises up those who are overwhelmed by their own sins. 
For as we have formerly shown in chapter 3, section 1 and 2, that repentance and faith go hand in hand, being united by an indissoluble tie, the one causing terror, the other joy, so in prayer they must both be present. This concurrence David expresses in a few words, quote, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship for thy holy temple, unquote, Psalm 5, verse 7. Under the goodness of God, he comprehends faith, at the same time not excluding fear. For not only does his majesty compel our reverence, but our own unworthiness also divests us of all pride and confidence and keeps us in fear. The confidence of which I speak is not one which frees the mind from all anxiety and soothes it with sweet and perfect rest. Such rest is peculiar to those who, while all their affairs are flowing to a wish, are annoyed by no care, stung with no regret, agitated by no fear. But the best stimulus which the saints have to prayer is when, in consequence of their own necessities, they feel the greatest disquietude and are all but driven to despair until faith seasonably comes to their aid because in such straits the goodness of God so shines upon them that while they groan, burdened by the weight of present calamities, and tormented with the fear of greater, they yet trust to this goodness, and in this way both lighten the difficulty of endurance, and take comfort in the hope of final deliverance. It is necessary, therefore, that the prayer of the believers should be the result of both feelings, and exhibit the influence of both. Namely, that while he groans under present and anxiously dreads new evils, he should at the same time have recourse to God, not at all doubting that God is ready to stretch out a helping hand to him. For it is not easy to say how much God is irritated by our distrust when we ask what we expect not of his goodness. Hence nothing is more accordant to the nature of prayer than to lay it down as a fixed rule, that it is not to come forth at random but is to follow in the footsteps of faith. To this principle Christ directs all of us in these words, quote, Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Unquote. Mark 11, verse 24. The same thing he declares in another passage. Quote, All things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. Unquote. Matthew 21, verse 22. In accordance with this are the words of James. Quote, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Unquote. James 1, verse 5. He most aptly expresses the power of faith by opposing it to wavering. No less worthy of notice is his additional statement, that those who approach God with a doubting, hesitating mind, without feeling assured whether they are to be heard or not, gain nothing by their prayers. Such persons he compares to a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Hence, in another passage, he terms genuine prayer, quote, the prayer of faith, unquote. James 5, verse 15. Again, since God so often declares that he will give to every man according to his faith, he intimates that we cannot obtain anything without faith. In short, it is faith which obtains everything that is granted to prayer. This is the meaning of Paul and the well-known passage to which dull men give too little heed. Quote, How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Unquote. Quote, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Unquote. Romans 10, verses 14 and 17. Gradually deducing the origin of prayer from faith, he distinctly maintains that God cannot be invoked sincerely except by those to whom, by the preaching of the gospel, his mercy and willingness have been made known, nay, familiarly explained. 
Section 12. This necessity our opponents do not at all consider. Therefore, when we say the believers ought to feel firmly assured, they think we are saying the absurdest thing in the world. But if they had any experience in true prayer, they would assuredly understand that God cannot be duly invoked without this firm sense of the divine benevolence. But as no man can well perceive the power of faith without at the same time feeling it in his heart, what profit is there in disputing with men of this character who plainly show that they have never had more than a vain imagination? The value and necessity of that assurance for which we contend is learned chiefly from prayer. Everyone who does not see this gives proof of a very stupid conscience. Therefore, leaving those who are thus blinded, let us fix our thoughts on the words of Paul, that God can only be invoked by such as have obtained a knowledge of his mercy from the gospel, and feel firmly assured that that mercy is ready to be bestowed upon them. What kind of prayer would this be? Quote, O Lord, I am indeed doubtful whether or not thou art inclined to hear me. But being oppressed with anxiety, I fly to thee that if I am worthy, thou mayest assist me. Unquote. None of the saints whose prayers are given in Scripture thus supplicated, nor are we thus taught by the Holy Spirit who tells us to quote, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Unquote. Hebrews 4, verse 16 and elsewhere teaches us to, quote, have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Christ, unquote. Ephesians 3, verse 12. This confidence of obtaining what we ask, a confidence which the Lord commands and all the saints teach by their example, we must therefore hold fast with both hands if we would pray to any advantage. The only prayer acceptable to God is that which springs, if I may so express it, from this presumption of faith and is founded on the full assurance of hope. We might have been contented to use the simple name of faith, but he adds not only confidence but liberty or boldness that by this mark he might distinguish us from unbelievers who indeed like us pray to God but pray at random. Hence the whole church thus prays, quote, Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee, unquote. Psalm 33, verse 22. The same condition is set down by the psalmist in another passage. Quote, when I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Unquote. Psalm 56, verse 9. Again, quote, in the morning I will direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. Unquote. Psalm 5, verse 3. From these words we gather that prayers are vainly poured out into the air unless accompanied with faith, in which, as from a watchtower, we may quietly wait for God. With this agrees the order of Paul's exhortation. For before urging believers to pray in the Spirit always with vigilance and assiduity, he enjoins them to take, quote, the shield of faith, unquote, quote, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, unquote, Ephesians 6, 16 through 18. Let the reader here call to mind what I formerly observed, that faith by no means fails, though accompanied with a recognition of our wretchedness, poverty, and pollution. How much soever believers may feel that they are oppressed by a heavy load of iniquity, and are not only devoid of everything which can procure the favor of God for them, but justly burdened with many sins which make him an object of dread, yet they cease not to present themselves, this feeling not deterring them from appearing in his presence, because there is no other access to him. Genuine prayer is not that by which we arrogantly extol ourselves before God, or set a great value on anything of our own, but that by which, while confessing our guilt, we utter our sorrows before God, just as children familiarly lay their complaints before their parents. 
Nay, the immense accumulation of our sins should rather spur us on and incite us to prayer. Of this the psalmist gives us an example. Quote, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. Unquote. Psalm 41, verse 4. I confess indeed that these things would prove mortal darts did not God give succor. But our Heavenly Father has, in ineffable kindness, added a remedy by which calming all perturbations, soothing our cares, and dispelling our fears, He condescendingly allures us to Himself. Nay, removing all doubts, not to say obstacles, makes the way smooth before us. Section 13. And first, indeed, in enjoining us to pray, he, by the very injunction, convicts us of impious contumacy if we obey not. He could not give a more precise command than that which is contained in the psalm. Quote, Call upon me in the day of trouble. Unquote. Psalm 50, verse 15. But as there is no office of piety more frequently enjoined by Scripture, there is no occasion for here dwelling longer upon it. Quote, Ask, unquote, says our Divine Master. Quote, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Unquote. Matthew 7, verse 7. Here indeed a promise is added to the precept, and this is necessary. For though all confess that we must obey the precept, yet the greater part would shun the invitation of God did he not promise that he would listen and be ready to answer. These two positions being laid down, it is certain that all who cavillingly allege that they are not to come to God directly are not only rebellious and disobedient, but are also convicted of unbelief inasmuch as they distrust the promises. There is the more occasion to attend to this because hypocrites, under a pretense of humility and modesty, proudly contemn the precept as well as deny all credit to the gracious invitation of God, nay, rob him of a principal part of his worship. For when he rejected sacrifices in which all holiness seemed then to consist, he declared that the chief thing, that which above all others is precious in his sight, is to be invoked in the day of necessity. Therefore, when he demands that which is his own, and urges us to alacrity in obeying, no pretext for doubt, how specious soever they may be, can excuse us. Hence all the passages throughout Scripture in which we are commanded to pray are set up before our eyes as so many banners to inspire us with confidence. It were presumption to go forward into the presence of God did He not anticipate us by His invitation. Accordingly, He opens up the way for us by His own voice. Quote, I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Unquote. Zechariah 13, verse 9. We see how He anticipates His worshippers and desires them to follow, and therefore we cannot fear that the melody which he himself dictates will prove unpleasing. Especially let us call to mind that noble description of the divine character by trusting to which we shall easily overcome every obstacle. Quote, o thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Unquote. Psalm 65, verse 2. What can be more loving or soothing than to see God invested with a title which assures us that nothing is more proper to his nature than to listen to the prayers of suppliants? Hence the psalmist infers that free access is given not to a few individuals, but to all men, since God addresses all in these terms. Quote, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Unquote. Psalm 50, verse 15. David, accordingly, appeals to the promise thus given in order to obtain what he asks. Quote, Thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee in house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. Unquote. 2 Samuel 7, verse 27. 
Here we infer that he would have been afraid but for the promise which emboldened him. So in another passage he fortifies himself with the general doctrine, quote, He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him, unquote. Psalm 145, verse 19. Nay, we may observe in the Psalms how the continuity of prayer is broken, and a transition is made at one time to the power of God, at another to his goodness, at another to the faithfulness of his promises. It might seem that David, by introducing these sentiments, unseasonably mutilates his prayers. But the believers well know by experience that their order grows languid unless new fuel be added, and therefore that meditation as well on the nature as the word of God during prayer is by no means superfluous. Let us not decline to imitate the example of David and introduce thoughts which may reanimate our languid minds with new vigor. Section 14 it is strange that these delightful promises affect us coldly, or scarcely at all, so that the generality of men prefer to wander up and down, forsaking the fountain of living waters and hewing out to themselves broken cisterns, rather than embrace the divine liberality voluntarily offered to them. Quote, the name of the Lord, unquote, says Solomon, quote, is a strong tower, the righteous runneth into it, and is safe, unquote. Joel, after predicting the fearful disaster which was at hand, subjoins the following memorable sentence, quote, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, unquote. This we know properly refers to the course of the gospel. Scarcely one in a hundred is moved to come into the presence of God, though he himself exclaims by Isaiah, quote, It shall come to pass that before they call I will answer, and while they are yet speaking I will hear, unquote. This honor he elsewhere bestows upon the whole church in general as belonging to all the members of Christ. Quote, he shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Unquote. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Proverbs 18, verse 10. Joel 2, verse 32. Isaiah 65, verse 24. Psalm 91, verse 15. And 145, verse 18. My intention, however, as I already observed, is not to enumerate all, but only select some admirable passages as a specimen how kindly God allures us to himself, and how extreme our ingratitude must be when with such powerful motives our sluggishness still retards us. Wherefore, let these words always resound in our ears. Quote, the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. Unquote. Psalm 145, verse 18. Likewise, those passages which we have quoted from Isaiah and Joel, in which God declares that his ear is open to our prayers, and that he is delighted as with a sacrifice of sweet savor when we cast our cares upon him. The special benefit of these promises we receive when we frame our prayer, not timorously or doubtingly, but when trusting to his word whose majesty might otherwise deter us, we are bold to call him Father, he himself deigning to suggest this most delightful name. Fortified by such invitations, it remains for us to know that we have therein sufficient materials for prayer. Since our prayers depend on no merit of our own, but all their worth and hope of success are founded and depend on the promises of God, so that they need no other support and require not to look up and down on this hand and on that. It must therefore be fixed in our minds that though we equal not the lauded sanctity of patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, yet as the command to pray is common to us as well as them, and faith is common, so if we lean on the word of God, we are in respect of this privilege their associates. 
For God declaring, as has already been seen, that he will listen and be favorable to all, encourages the most wretched to hope that they shall obtain what they ask. And accordingly we should attend to the general forms of expression, which, as it is commonly expressed, exclude none from first to last. Only let there be sincerity of heart, self-dissatisfaction, humility, and faith, that we may not, by the hypocrisy of a deceitful prayer, profane the name of God. Our most merciful Father will not reject those whom he not only encourages to come, but urges in every possible way. Hence David's method of prayer to which I lately referred. Quote, and now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. Unquote. Second Samuel 7, verse 28. So also in another passage. Quote, Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort according to thy word unto thy servant. Unquote. Psalm 119, verse 76. And the whole body of the Israelites, whenever they fortified themselves with the remembrance of the covenant, plainly declare that since God thus prescribes, they are not to pray timorously. Genesis 32, verse 10. In this they imitated the example of the patriarchs, particularly Jacob, who, after confessing that he was unworthy of the many mercies which he had received of the Lord's hand, says that he is encouraged to make still larger requests because God had promised that he would grant them. But whatever be the pretext which unbelievers employ, when they do not flee to God as often as necessity urges, nor seek after him, nor implore his aid, they defraud him of his due honor just as much as if they were fabricating to themselves new gods and idols, since in this way they deny that God is the author of all their blessings. On the contrary, nothing more effectually frees pious minds from every doubt than to be armed with the thought that no obstacle should impede them while they are obeying the command of God, who declares that nothing is more grateful to him than obedience. Hence again, what I have previously said becomes still more clear, namely that a bold spirit in prayer well accords with fear, reverence, and anxiety, and that there is no inconsistency when God raises up those who had fallen prostrate. In this way, forms of expression apparently inconsistent admirably harmonize. Jeremiah and David speak of humbly laying their supplications before God. In another passage, Jeremiah says, quote, Let, we beseech thee, our supplication be accepted before thee, and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant. Unquote. On the other hand, believers are often said to lift up prayer. Thus Hezekiah speaks when asking the prophet to undertake the office of interceding. And David says, quote, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Unquote. Jeremiah 42, verse 9. Daniel 9, verse 18. Jeremiah 42, verse 2. 2 Kings 19, verse 4. And Psalm 144, verse 2. The explanation is that though believers persuaded of the paternal love of God cheerfully rely on his faithfulness and have no hesitation in imploring the aid which he voluntarily offers, they are not elated with supine or presumptuous security, but climbing up by the ladder of the promises still remain humble and abased suppliants. Section 15. Here, by way of objection, several questions are raised. Scripture relates that God sometimes complied with certain prayers which had been dictated by minds not duly calmed or regulated. It is true that the cause for which Jotham imprecated on the inhabitants of Shechem the disaster which afterwards befell them was well founded, but still he was inflamed with anger and revenge. Judges 9 verse 20. 
and hence God, by complying with the execration, seems to approve of passionate impulses. Similar fervor also seized Samson when he prayed. Quote, Strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Unquote. Judges 16, verse 28. For although there was some mixture of good zeal, yet his ruling feeling was a fervid and therefore vicious longing for vengeance. God assents, and hence apparently it might be inferred that prayers are effectual, though not framed in conformity to the rule of the word. But I answer first that a perpetual law is not abrogated by singular examples, and secondly that special suggestions have sometimes been made to a few individuals, whose case thus becomes different from that of the generality of men. For we should attend to the answer which our Savior gave to his disciples when they inconsiderately wished to imitate the example of Elias. Quote, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. Unquote. Luke 9, verse 55. We must, however, go farther and say that the wishes to which God assents are not always pleasing to him. But he assents because it is necessary by way of example to give clear evidence of the doctrine of Scripture, viz., that he assists the miserable, and hears the groans of those who, unjustly afflicted, implore his aid, and accordingly he executes his judgments when the complaints of the needy, though in themselves unworthy of attention, ascend to him. For how often in inflicting punishment on the ungodly for cruelty, rapine, violence, lust, and other crimes, in curbing audacity and fury, and also in overthrowing tyrannical power, has he declared that he gives assistance to those who are unworthily oppressed, though they, by addressing an unknown deity, only beat the air. There is one psalm which clearly teaches that prayers are not without effect, though they do not penetrate to heaven by faith. Psalm 107 for it enumerates the prayers which by natural instinct necessity extorts from unbelievers not less than from believers and to which it shows by the event that God is notwithstanding propitious is it to testify by such readiness to hear that their prayers are agreeable to him nay it is first to magnify or display his mercy by the circumstance that even the wishes of unbelievers are not denied and secondly, to stimulate his true worshippers to more urgent prayer when they see that sometimes even the wailings of the ungodly are not without avail. This, however, is no reason why believers should deviate from the law divinely imposed upon them, or envy unbelievers as if they gained much in obtaining what they wished. We have observed in chapter 3, section 25, that in this way God yielded to the feigned repentance of Ahab, that he might show how ready he is to listen to his elect when, with true contrition, they seek his favor. Accordingly, he upbraids the Jews, that shortly after experiencing his readiness to listen to their prayers, they return to their own perverse inclinations. It is also plain from the book of Judges that whenever they wept, though their tears were deceitful, they were delivered from the hands of their enemies. Therefore, as God sends his Son indiscriminately on the evil and on the good, so he despises not the tears of those who have a good cause, and whose sorrows are deserving of relief. Meanwhile, though he hears them, it has no more to do with salvation than the supply of food which he gives to other despisers of his goodness. There seems to be a more difficult question concerning Abraham and Samuel, the one of whom, without any instructions from the word of God, prayed in behalf of the people of Sodom, and the other, contrary to an express prohibition, prayed in behalf of Saul. Genesis 18, verse 23, and 1 Samuel 15, verse 11. Similar is the case of Jeremiah, who prayed that the city might not be destroyed. Jeremiah 32, verse 16. It is true their prayers were refused, but it seems harsh to affirm that they prayed without faith. 
Modest readers will, I hope, be satisfied with this solution, viz., that leaning to the general principle in which God enjoins us to be merciful even to the unworthy, they were not altogether devoid of faith, though in this particular instance their wish was disappointed. Augustine shrewdly remarks, quote, How do the saints pray in faith when they ask from God contrary to what he has decreed? Namely, because they pray according to his will, not his hidden and immutable will, but that which he suggests to them that he may hear them in another manner, as he wisely distinguishes, unquote. This is truly said, for in his incomprehensible counsel he so regulates events that the prayers of the saints, though involving a mixture of faith and error, are not in vain. And yet this no more sanctions imitation than it excuses the saints themselves, who I deny not exceeded due bounds. Wherefore, whenever no certain promise exists, our request to God must have a condition annexed to it. Here we may refer to the prayer of David. Quote, Away for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded, unquote. Psalm 7, verse 6. For he reminds us that he had received special instruction to pray for a temporal blessing. Section 16. It is also of importance to observe that the four laws of prayer of which I have treated are not so rigorously enforced as that God rejects the prayers in which he does not find perfect faith or repentance, accompanied with fervent zeal and wishes duly framed. We have said in section 4 that though prayer is the familiar intercourse of believers with God, yet reverence and modesty must be observed. We must not give loose reins to our wishes, nor long for anything farther than God permits. And, moreover, lest the majesty of God should be despised, our minds must be elevated to pure and chaste veneration. This no man ever performed with due perfection. For, not to speak of the generality of men, how often do David's complaints savor of intemperance? Not that he actually means to expostulate with God or murmur at his judgments, but failing through infirmity, he finds no better solace than to pour his griefs into the bosom of his heavenly Father. Nay, even our stammering is tolerated by God, and pardon is granted to our ignorance as often as anything rashly escapes us. Indeed, without this indulgence we should have no freedom to pray. But although it was David's intention to submit himself entirely to the will of God, and he prayed with no less patience than fervor, yet irregular emotions appear, nay, sometimes burst forth, emotions not a little at variance with the first law which we laid down. In particular, we may see in a clause of the 39th Psalm how this saint was carried away by the vehemence of his grief and unable to keep within bounds. Quote, O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Unquote. Psalm 39, verse 13. You would call this the language of a desperate man who had no other desire than that God should withdraw and leave him to perish in his distresses. Not that his devout mind rushes into such intemperance, or that, as the reprobate are wont, he wishes to have done with God. He only complains that the divine anger is more than he can bear. During those trials, wishes often escape, which are not in accordance with the rule of the word, and in which the saints do not duly consider what is lawful and expedient. Prayers contaminated by such faults indeed deserve to be rejected. Yet, provided the saints lament administer self-correction, and return to themselves, God pardons. Similar faults are committed in regard to the second law, as to which see section 6. For the saints have often to struggle with their own coldness, their want and misery not urging them sufficiently to serious prayer. It often happens also that their minds wander, and are almost lost. 
Hence in this matter also there is need of pardon, lest their prayers from being languid or mutilated or interrupted in wandering should meet with a refusal. One of the natural feelings which God has imprinted on our mind is that prayer is not genuine unless the thoughts are turned upward. Hence the ceremony of raising the hands, to which we have adverted a ceremony known to all ages and nations, and still in common use. But who, in lifting up his hands, is not conscious of sluggishness, the heart cleaving to the earth? In regard to the petition for remission of sins, section 8, though no believer omits it, yet all who are truly exercised in prayer feel that they bring scarcely a tenth of the sacrifice of which David speaks. Quote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Unquote. Psalm 51, verse 17. Thus a twofold pardon is always to be asked. First, because they are conscious of many faults, the sense of which, however, does not touch them, so as to make them feel dissatisfied with themselves as they ought. And, secondly, insofar as they have been enabled to profit in repentance and the fear of God, they are humbled with just sorrow for their offenses, and pray for the remission of punishment by the judge. The thing which most of all vitiates prayer, did not God indulgently interpose, is weakness or imperfection of faith. But it is not wonderful that this defect is pardoned by God, who often exercises his people with severe trials, as if he actually wished to extinguish their faith. The hardest of such trials is when believers are forced to exclaim, quote, O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Unquote. Psalm 80, verse 4. As if their very prayers offended him. In like manner, when Jeremiah says, Quote, also when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. Unquote. Lamentations 3, verse 8. There cannot be a doubt that he was in the greatest perturbation. Innumerable examples of the same kind occur in the scriptures, from which it is manifest that the faith of the saints was often mingled with doubts and fears, so that while believing and hoping, they however betrayed some degree of unbelief. But because they do not come so far as were to be wished, that is only an additional reason for their exerting themselves to correct their faults, that they may daily approach nearer to the perfect law of prayer, and at the same time feel into what an abyss of evils those are plunged who, in the very cures they use, bring new diseases upon themselves. Since there is no prayer which God would not deservedly disdain, did he not overlook the blemishes with which all of them are polluted. I do not mention these things that believers may securely pardon themselves in any faults which they commit, but that they may call themselves to strict account, and thereby endeavor to surmount these obstacles. And though Satan endeavors to block up all the paths in order to prevent them from praying, they may nevertheless break through, being firmly persuaded that though not disencumbered of all hindrances, their attempts are pleasing to God, and their wishes are approved, provided they hasten on and keep their aim, though without immediately reaching it. Section 17. But since no man is worthy to come forward in his own name and appear in the presence of God, our Heavenly Father, to relieve us at once from fear and shame with which all must feel oppressed, has given us his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to be our advocate and mediator, that under his guidance we may approach securely, confiding that with him for our intercessor nothing which we ask in his name will be denied to us, as there is nothing which the Father can deny to him. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, 1 John 2, verse 1. See sections 36 and 37. To this it is necessary to refer all that we have previously taught concerning faith. 
because as the promise gives us Christ as our mediator, so unless our hope of obtaining what we ask is founded in him, it deprives us of the privilege of prayer. For it is impossible to think of the dread majesty of God without being filled with alarm, and hence the sense of our own unworthiness must keep us far away until Christ interpose and convert a throne of dreadful glory into a throne of grace. As the Apostle teaches that thus we can, quote, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, unquote. Hebrews 4, verse 16. And as a rule has been laid down as to prayer, as a promise has been given that those who pray will be heard, so we are specially enjoined to pray in the name of Christ, the promise being that we shall obtain what we ask in his name. Quote, whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, unquote, says our Savior, Quote, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, unquote. Quote, hitherto ye have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full, unquote. John 14, verse 13, and 16, verse 24. Hence, it is incontrovertibly clear that those who pray to God in any other name than that of Christ contumaciously falsify his orders, and regard his will as nothing, while they have no promise that they shall obtain. For, as Paul says, quote, All the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unquote. that is, are confirmed and fulfilled in him. Section 18. And we must carefully attend to the circumstance of time. Christ enjoins his disciples to have recourse to his intercession after he shall have ascended to heaven. Quote, At that time ye shall ask in my name, unquote. John 16, verse 26. It is certain indeed that from the very first all who ever prayed were heard only for the sake of the mediator. For this reason God had commanded in the law that the priest alone should enter the sanctuary, bearing the names of the twelve tribes of Israel on his shoulders, and as many precious stones on his breast while the people were to stand at a distance in the outer court, and thereafter unite their prayers with the priest. Nay, the sacrifice had even the effect of ratifying and confirming their prayers. That shadowy ceremony of the law therefore taught, first, that we are all excluded from the face of God, and therefore that there is need of a mediator to appear in our name, and carry us on his shoulders, and keep us bound upon his breast, that we may be heard in his person. And, secondly, that our prayers, which, as has been said, would otherwise never be free from impurity, are cleansed by the sprinkling of his blood. And we see that the saints, when they desired to obtain anything, founded their hopes on sacrifices, because they knew that by sacrifice all prayers were ratified. Quote, Remember thy offerings, unquote, says David, quote, and accept thy burnt sacrifice, unquote. Psalm 20, verse 3. Hence we infer that in receiving the prayers of his people, God was from the very first appeased by the intercession of Christ. Why then does Christ speak of a new period? Quote, at that day, unquote, when the disciples were to begin to pray in his name, unless it be that this grace, being now more brightly displayed, ought also to be in higher estimation with us. In this sense, he had said a little before, quote, Hitherto ye have asked nothing in my name. Ask. Unquote. Not that they were altogether ignorant of the office of mediator. All the Jews were instructed in these first rudiments. But they did not clearly understand that Christ, by his ascent to heaven, would be more the advocate of the church than before. 
Therefore, to solace their grief for his absence by some more than ordinary result, he asserts his office of advocate and says that hitherto they had been without the special benefit which it would be their privilege to enjoy when aided by his intercession, they should invoke God with greater freedom. In this sense, the apostle says that we have, quote, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, unquote. Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, the more inexcusable we are if we do not with both hands, as it is said, embrace the inestimable gift which is properly destined for us. Section 19. Moreover, since he himself is the only way and the only access by which we can draw near to God, those who deviate from this way and decline this access have no other remaining. His throne presents nothing but wrath, judgment, and terror. In short, as the Father has consecrated him our guide and head, those who abandon or turn aside from him in any way endeavor as much as in them lies to sully and deface the stamp which God has impressed. Christ, therefore, is the only mediator by whose intercession the Father is rendered propitious and exorable. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For though the saints are still permitted to use intercessions by which they mutually beseech God in behalf of each other's salvation, and of which the Apostle makes mention, Ephesians 6, verses 18 and 19, and 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, still these depend on that one intercession, so far are they from derogating from it. For as the intercessions which as members of one body we offer up for each other spring from the feeling of love, so they have reference to this one head. Being thus also made in the name of Christ, what more do they then declare that no man can derive the least benefit from any prayers without the intercession of Christ? As there is nothing in the intercession of Christ to prevent the different members of the church from offering up prayers for each other, so let it be held as a fixed principle that all the intercession thus used in the church must have reference to that one intercession. Nay, we must be specially careful to show our gratitude on this very account, that God, pardoning our unworthiness, not only allows each individual to pray for himself, but allows all to intercede mutually for each other. God, having given a place in his church to intercessors who would deserve to be rejected when praying privately on their own account, how presumptuous were it to abuse this kindness by employing it to obscure the honor of Christ. Section 20. Moreover, the sophists are guilty of the merest trifling when they allege that Christ is the mediator of redemption, but that believers are mediators of intercession, as if Christ had only performed a temporary mediation and left an eternal and imperishable mediation to his servants. Such forsooth is a treatment which he receives from those who pretend only to take from him a minute portion of honor. Very different is the language of Scripture, with whose simplicity every pious man will be satisfied without paying any regard to those impostors. For when John says, quote, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, unquote, 1 John 2, verse 1, does he mean merely that we once had an advocate? Does he not rather ascribe to him a perpetual intercession? What does Paul mean when he declares that he, quote, is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, unquote. Romans 8, verse 32. But when in another passage he declares that he is the only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, is he not referring to the supplications which he had mentioned a little before? Having previously said that prayers were to be offered up for all men, he immediately adds, in confirmation of that statement, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. 
Nor does Augustine give a different interpretation when he says, quote, Christian men mutually recommend each other in their prayers. But he for whom none intercedes, while he himself intercedes for all, is the only true mediator. Though the Apostle Paul was under the head a principal member, yet because he was a member of the body of Christ and knew that the most true and high priest of the church had entered not by figure into the inner veil to the Holy of Holies, but by firm and express truth into the inner sanctuary of heaven to holiness, holiness not imaginary but eternal, he also commends himself to the prayers of the faithful. He does not make himself a mediator between God and the people, but asks that all the members of the body of Christ should pray mutually for each other, since the members are mutually sympathetic. If one member suffers, the others suffer with it. And thus the mutual prayers of all the members still laboring on the earth ascend to the head, who has gone before into heaven, and in whom there is propitiation for our sins. For if Paul were a mediator, so would also the other apostles, and thus there would be many mediators, and Paul's statement could not stand. Here, quote, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Close inner quote. In whom we also are one if we keep the unity of the faith in the bond of peace. Unquote. Likewise, in another passage, Augustine says, quote, If thou requirest a priest, he is above the heavens, where he intercedes for those who on earth died for thee. Unquote. We imagine not that he throws himself before his father's knees and suppliantly intercedes for us. But we understand with the apostle that he appears in the presence of God and that the power of his death has the effect of a perpetual intercession for us that having entered into the upper sanctuary, he alone continues to the end of the world to present the prayers of his people, who are standing far off in the outer court. Section 21. In regard to the saints who, having died in the body, live in Christ, if we attribute prayer to them, let us not imagine that they have any other way of supplicating God than through Christ, who alone is the way, or that their prayers are accepted by God in any other name. Wherefore, since the Scripture calls us away from all others to Christ alone, since our Heavenly Father is pleased to gather together all things in Him, it were the extreme of stupidity, not to say madness, to attempt to obtain access by means of others so as to be drawn away from Him without whom access cannot be obtained. But who can deny that this was the practice for several ages, and is still the practice wherever popery prevails? To procure the favor of God, human merits are ever and anon obtruded, and very frequently, while Christ is passed by, God is supplicated in their name. I ask if this is not to transfer to them that office of soul intercession which we have above claimed for Christ. Then, what angel or devil ever announced one syllable to any human being concerning that fancied intercession of theirs? There is not a word on the subject in Scripture. What ground, then, was there for the fiction? Certainly, while the human mind thus seeks help for itself, in which it is not sanctioned by the word of God, it plainly manifests its distrust. See section 27. But if we appeal to the consciences of all who take pleasure in the intercession of saints, we shall find that their only reason for it is that they are filled with anxiety as if they supposed that Christ were insufficient or too rigorous. By this anxiety they dishonor Christ and rob him of his title of soul mediator, a title which being given him by the Father as his special privilege ought not to be transferred to any other. By so doing they obscure the glory of his nativity and make void his cross. In short, 
divest, and defraud of due praise everything which he did or suffered, since all which he did and suffered goes to show that he is and ought to be deemed sole mediator. At the same time they reject the kindness of God in manifesting himself to them as a father, for he is not their father if they do not recognize Christ as their brother. This they plainly refuse to do if they think not that he feels for them a brother's affection, affection than which none can be more gentle or tender. Wherefore, Scripture offers him alone, sends us to him, and establishes us in him. Quote, he, unquote, says Ambrose, quote, is our mouth by which we speak to the Father, our eye by which we see the Father, our right hand by which we offer ourselves to the Father. Save by his intercession, neither we nor any saints have any intercourse with God, unquote. If they object that the public prayers which are offered up in churches conclude with the words, Through Jesus Christ our Lord, it is a frivolous evasion, because no less insult is offered to the intercession of Christ by confounding it with the prayers and merits of the dead than by omitting it altogether and making mention only of the dead. Then, in all their litanies, hymns, and proses, where every kind of honor is paid to dead saints, there is no mention of Christ. Section 22 but here stupidity has proceeded to such a length as to give a manifestation of the genius of superstition which, when once it has shaken off the rain, is wont to wanton without limit. After men began to look to the intercession of saints, a peculiar administration was gradually assigned to each, so that, according to diversity of business, now one, now another intercessor was invoked. Then individuals adopted particular saints, and put their faith in them, just as if they had been tutelar deities. And thus not only were God set up according to the number of the cities, the charge which the prophet brought against Israel of old in Jeremiah 2, verse 28, and 11, verse 13, but according to the number of individuals. But while the saints and all their desires refer to the will of God alone, look to it and acquiesce in it, yet to assign to them any other prayer than that of longing for the arrival of the kingdom of God is to think of them stupidly, carnally, and even insultingly. Nothing can be farther from such a view than to imagine that each, under the influence of private feeling, is disposed to be most favorable to his own worshipers. At length, vast numbers have fallen into the horrid blasphemy of invoking them not merely as helping, but presiding over their salvation. See the depth to which miserable men fall when they forsake their proper station, that is, the word of God. I say nothing of the more monstrous specimens of impiety in which, though detestable to God, angels and men, they themselves feel no pain or shame. Prostrated at a statue or picture of Barbara or Catherine and the like, they mutter a potter noster. And so far are their pastors from curing or curbing this frantic course that allured by the scent of gain they approve and applaud it. But while seeking to relieve themselves of the odium of this vile and criminal procedure, with what pretext can they defend the practice of calling upon a lawyer or metard to look upon their servants and send them help from heaven? Or the Holy Virgin to order her son to do what they ask? The council of Carthage forbade direct prayer to be made at the altar to saints. It is probable that these holy men, unable entirely to suppress the force of depraved custom, had recourse to this check that public prayers might not be vitiated with such forms of expression as Sancti Petre, Ora Pro Nobis, St. Peter, pray for us. But how much farther has this devilish extravagance proceeded when men hesitate not to transfer to the dead the peculiar attributes of Christ and God? Section 23 
In endeavoring to prove that such intercession derives some support from Scripture, they labor in vain. We frequently read, they say, of the prayers of angels. And not only so, but the prayers of believers are said to be carried into the presence of God by their hands. But if they would compare saints who have departed this life with angels, it will be necessary to prove that saints are ministering spirits, to whom has been delegated the office of superintending our salvation, to whom has been assigned the providence of guiding us in all our ways, of encompassing, admonishing, and comforting us, of keeping watch over us. All these are assigned to angels, but none of them to saints. How preposterously they confound departed saints with angels is sufficiently apparent from the many different offices by which Scripture distinguishes the one from the other. No one, unless admitted, will presume to perform the office of pleader before an earthly judge. Once then have worms such license as to obtrude themselves on God as intercessors while no such office has been assigned them. God has been pleased to give angels the charge of our safety. Hence they attend our sacred meetings, and the church is to them a theater in which they behold the manifold wisdom of God. Ephesians 3, verse 10. Those who transfer to others this office, which is peculiar to them, certainly pervert and confound the order which has been established by God and ought to be inviolable. With similar dexterity they proceed to quote other passages. God said to Jeremiah, quote, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people, unquote. Jeremiah 15, verse 1. How, they ask, could he have spoken thus of the dead, but because he knew that they interceded for the living? My inference, on the contrary, is this. Since it thus appears that neither Moses nor Samuel interceded for the people of Israel, there was then no intercession for the dead. For who of the saints can be supposed to labor for the salvation of the people, while Moses, who, when in life, far surpassed all others in this matter, does nothing? Therefore, If they persist in the paltry quibble that the dead intercede for the living, because the Lord said, If they stood before me, intercessorant, I will argue far more speciously in this way. Moses, of whom it is said, If he interceded, did not intercede for the people in their extreme necessity. It is probable, therefore, that no other saint intercedes, all being far behind Moses in humanity, goodness, and paternal solicitude. Thus all they gain by their caviling is to be wounded by the very arms with which they deem themselves admirably protected. But it is very ridiculous to rest this simple sentence in this manner, for the Lord only declares that he would not spare the iniquities of the people, though some Moses, or Samuel, to whose prayers he had shown himself so indulgent, should intercede for them. This meaning is most clearly elicited from a similar passage in Ezekiel. Quote, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job were in it they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Unquote. Ezekiel 14, verse 14. Here there can be no doubt that we are to understand the words as if it had been said, If two of the persons named were again to come alive, for the third was still living, namely Daniel, who it is well known that then in the bloom of youth given an incomparable display of piety. Let us therefore leave out those whom Scripture declares to have completed their course. Accordingly, when Paul speaks of David, he says not that by his prayers he assisted posterity, but only that he, quote, served his own generation, unquote. Acts 13, verse 36. Section 24. They again object. Are those then to be deprived of every pious wish who, during the whole course of their lives, breathed nothing but piety and mercy? 
I have no wish curiously to pry into what they do or meditate. But the probability is that instead of being subject to the impulse of various and particular desires, they, with one fixed and immovable will, long for the kingdom of God, which consists not less in the destruction of the ungodly than in the salvation of believers. If this be so, there cannot be a doubt that their charity is confined to the communion of Christ's body and extends no farther than is compatible with the nature of that communion. But though I grant that in this way they pray for us, they do not, however, lose their quiescence so as to be distracted with earthly cares. Far less they are, therefore, to be invoked by us. Nor does it follow that such invocation is to be used, because while men are alive upon the earth, they can mutually commend themselves to each other's prayers. It serves to keep alive a feeling of charity when they, as it were, share each other's wants and bear each other's burdens. This they do by the command of the Lord, and not without a promise, the two things of primary importance in prayer. But all such things are inapplicable to the dead, with whom the Lord, in withdrawing them from our society, has left us no means of intercourse. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 6. And to whom, so far as we can conjecture, he has left no means of intercourse with us. But if any one allege that they certainly must retain the same charity for us as they are united with us in one faith, who has revealed to us that they have ears capable of listening to the sounds of our voice, or eyes clear enough to discern our necessities? Our opponents indeed talk in the shade of their schools of some kind of light which beams upon departed saints from the divine countenance, and in which, as in a mirror, they from their lofty abode behold the affairs of men. But to affirm this with the confidence which these men presume to use is just to desire, by means of the extravagant dreams of our own brain, and without any authority, to pry and penetrate into the hidden judgments of God and trample upon Scripture, which so often declares that the wisdom of our flesh is at enmity with the wisdom of God, utterly condemns the vanity of our mind, and, humbling our reason, bids us look only to the will of God. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 3730 by fax at 7804681096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton AB Canada T6L3T5 If you do not have a web connection please request a free printed catalog If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, 
free electronic books and text, etc., SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.